0: Reacting to the world's best science, the Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello, welcome to the Naked Scientist Newsflash with me, Ben Valsler. This week, I'll be bringing you the latest science news along with Dr. Kat Army. We'll be hearing how a long-running evolution experiment discovered mutations that greatly increased the rate at which other mutations occurred.
1: Now, they found that a DNA mutation involved in DNA metabolism happened around sort of 26,000 generations. And this mutation in... The enzyme that helps to make DNA actually means that the chances of mutations happening elsewhere in the genome really goes up a lot. So by generation 40,000, there were 653 advantageous mutations, compared with the 45 they found halfway through the experiment.
0: How wobbling an embryonic stem cell, or ES cell, can change its fate.
1: The scientists found out that the ES cells were much softer and more sensitive to the movements than more advanced cells that had started to go down different. Fate routes, and they found that applying movement to ES cells, this wiggling, caused them to switch off the activity of certain genes, and some of those genes control what type of cell the ES cell is going to become.
0: And we hear about a new coating that could prevent insect infestations.
2: Because if you look around you, all insects that you can see, they have a they have sweaty feet actually, so they have (laughs) have, they do yes, (laughs) and so this foot sweat that they have um, that helps them to stick to surfaces, and our technology does something very new it it tricks the insects feet it makes them lubricate their own feet plus
0: sarah castor perry returns to look at the birth of ted fujita also known as mr tornado this week in science history that's all on the way
1: and now it's time for the news and we're going to talk now about evolution And evolution on a grand scale, now this is the sort of evolution that produced humans from our monkey-like ancestors, that takes millions of years and it's kind of difficult to recreate in a lab. But researchers at Michigan State University have been running an evolutionary experiment over 21 years that is showing natural selection at work. Now the scientists uh, led by Professor Richard Linsky have bred and analysed a staggering 40,000 generations of bacteria and they're publishing their findings today in the journal Nature.
0: This is really impressive stuff. We have had Richard Lenski on the show before, actually. When did he first start doing this?
1: Well, he first started growing these E. coli bacteria back in 1988. These are kind of bugs you find in your stomach, and you can grow them in flasks in the lab. They reproduce roughly every 20 minutes, so they're quite good for studying. Now, he figured that if a bacterial cell picks up a genetic mutation that gives it an advantage, then its progeny should start to take over the flask. Now, this is Darwin's theory of natural selection in action. And although this kind of experiment's been done before, this is the longest running and the most detailed study of its kind.
0: So once they've actually grown them in the flask, how did they study the bacteria?
1: Well, what they've been doing over the past two decades (laughs) is periodically freezing samples of bugs from the culture... But it's only really now that we've actually got the genome sequencing technology that means we can study them really in minute genetic detail. So now we've got the technology to do justice to this experiment.
0: So now that we have the technology, what are we finding?
1: Well... When you look at the halfway marks at 20,000 generations, the scientists discovered that there were 45 mutations in the surviving cells. Now, as you might expect, these mutations give an advantage to the bacteria. Um, And also the experiment revealed interesting relationships between the speed at which organisms adapt and the rate of mutation in their genomes. Now, Lenski himself actually says the genome was evolving at a surprisingly constant rate but the adaptation of the bacteria slowed down. But then suddenly the mutation rate jumped up and you've got this new sort of dynamic relationship. Now, they found that a DNA mutation involved uh, in DNA metabolism happened around sort of 26,000 generations. And this mutation in... The enzyme that helps to make DNA actually means that the chances of mutations happening elsewhere in the genome really goes up a lot. So by generation 40,000, there were 653 advantageous mutations, compared with the 45 they found sort of halfway through the experiment.
0: So it's not just creeping up and we get the odd mutation every now and then It keeps going fairly constantly. Some of these mutations themselves seem to cause this big jump, and so we get lots more mutations, which of course should mean quicker evolution
1: exactly and it's really interesting uh, because this research sheds light on many other situations where we get these kind of big jumps in evolution for example in cancers you suddenly pick up a mutation that affects the dna and You know, then the cancer starts to pick up a lot more mutations that make it grow and spread. Or in the case of of microbial infections, as they start to, to take over. And it also could be useful for industrial scientists who are growing bugs that produce enzymes and drugs. And, you know, maybe it could help the performance of their bacteria.
0: Fantastic. It should be very interesting to see as well how bacteria develop resistance. If they have a mutation that causes them to change very quickly, then they'll adapt very quickly to whatever we throw at them. Absolutely. Now, some sounds, such as a speeding car that sneaks up on you or footsteps in a dark alley, actually seem to improve our eyesight even before we're aware that we can hear them. And this is according to research published in the journal Current Biology. Now this gives us cause to rethink the idea that hearing and vision are handled separately in the brain at the input stage.
1: So go on then, how do you figure this one out?
0: (laughs) Well this was Gregor Tut at the University of Glasgow and his colleagues at uh, Glasgow and in fact all over the world. They performed a series of experiments to look at the excitability of a part of the brain called the low level visual cortex and they wanted to see if it was altered by hearing different sounds, in particular looming sounds. So to do this they used a technique called transcranial Magnetic stimulation.
1: Is this where you like, you just kind of zap someone's brain? It's
0: exactly zapping somebody somebody's brain. It uses rapidly changing magnetic fields to induce small currents in the neurons in your brain. And this stimulation in that area leads to the perception of flashes of light, a bit like those that you see when you rub your eyes a little. Oh, when sort of yeah, you put your flashing.
1: fingers right in your eyes. Yeah.
0: Uh, that's called phosphine induction. Now, in the presence of looming sounds, these structured sounds that sound like they're getting closer like to footsteps. you. Like footsteps. Like footsteps steps exactly compared to control sounds that stayed the same volume or got quieter the perception of phosphines was greatly and selectively enhanced so this shows that these sounds do indeed alter the excitability of that bit of your brain that's responsible for your vision They did see an increase in excitability when listening to the constant volume sounds, but the looming sounds actually doubled the baseline phosphine perception. So this increase actually happened about 35 milliseconds before volunteers could hear the sound at all
1: so this is something that's really at sort of the subconscious reflex type level and is this something that we've evolved to adapt so you might hear footsteps and think oh crikey um and be aware of something even before you've Realised.
0: I think that's almost certainly what happened. They say it's a pre-perceptive change in your brain. So before you perceive the sound, your brain has already altered its excitability to make up for it. Um, they also followed an experiment to, uh, to see if it was just the increasing intensity that got this reaction. So the fact that the sound was getting louder rather than it feeling like it was coming closer. And... If you have a very structured sound like footsteps or like... A car. A, a car <laughs> yes, something that's that's quite structured, relatively narrow band, then it can sound like it's getting closer. But if you have something like white noise, just a, a broad hiss, then that will just sound like it's getting louder and won't feel like it's getting closer. So when they did the same test with these sounds, they found that the visual cortex was just as excitable as when you were listening to constant volume noises, but not as excitable as when listening to these looming noises. So it's definitely to do with the fact that it feels like it's coming closer.
1: Something creeping up on Something you. Something
0: creeping up on you, exactly. Now this shows that visual perception can be boosted by other senses in, as I said, a pre-perceptive way. So before we realise what we're hearing. And this shows us that not only may this be an evolved capacity to listen out for that saber-toothed tiger creeping up <laughs> on us when we're in our cave, but it may also Give us cause to rethink the structure of the brain itself.
1: Oh, there you go. And maybe make men look out for you when they hear your high heels coming. <laughs> anyway, uh, from uh, the brain to the very start of life. And uh, talking about embryonic stem cells. Now, these have been hot news in science for quite a while. These are the first cells that form in the developing embryo just a couple of days after fertilisation. And they're amazing little cells because they have the potential to become any type of cell in the body and because of this property scientists are trying to turn them into all sorts of different types of cells in order to repair diseased or worn out tissues. Now researchers grow embryonic stem cells or ES cells in the lab and then they treat them with various chemicals or they do manipulations on their genes to try and get the cells to adopt different fates but now scientists in Illinois have made an unexpected discovery and that's that ES cells might be coaxed into certain fates by physical stresses and strains in the embryo
0: so actually pushing on the cells seems to change what they do
1: yeah it's fascinating stuff and this is research that's just been published in the journal nature materials from ning wang and colleagues who were looking at the effect of forces on different types of cells now to do this they attach a single tiny magnetic bead this is like a few nanometers uh, to the surface of a living mouse es cell And then they put the cells into a tiny oscillating magnetic field and that makes the bead wiggle up and down and this makes the cells start to wiggle up and down, and this mimics the natural forces that are within a cell, such as the movement of little motor proteins that are churning stuff around inside the cells. Now, this setup meant they could actually measure the mechanical force being applied to the cell and measure how soft the cells are.
0: And when they did, what did they find?
1: Well, the scientists found out that the ES cells were much softer and more sensitive to the movements than more advanced cells that had started to go down different fate routes now for example uh, muscle cells are much much stiffer than es cells and the scientists also went to look at, at the effect of physical forces on the activity of different genes in the cells and they found that applying movement to es cells this wiggling caused them to switch off the activity of certain genes and some of those genes control what type of cell the es cell is going to become
0: so Now, I might be taking this a step too far, but does this mean that we can change what an embryonic stem cell is going to become just by wiggling it about?
1: Possibly. That seems to be what it says. (laughs) And now at the moment, this research has just been done using mouse ES cells, and we don't know if human ES cells will respond in the same way. But it could provide a useful way of persuading cells to adopt certain fates. So, for example, if doctors are trying to replace damaged or worn-out cells, and if it actually works in living embryos, maybe you can alter the fates of specific cells at an early stage. For example, if there are developmental defects going on without affecting neighbouring cells.
0: Fantastic. Well, thinking of different types of cell, um, you know there are various different taste cells on your tongue that mean you can taste different
1: things. Sour, sweet, salt, umami. Uh,
0: Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, um, scientists have now discovered exactly what's going on when you taste a fizzy drink. It's both a physical and a chemical experience. Not only do you have the bubbles forming on your tongue, but also there's a chemical thing going on with one specific group of those taste receptors. Now, reporting in this week's science, Jay Amram, Chakasendra, and colleagues from the Howard Hughes Medical Institute at the University of California, San Diego, and colleagues from various other places in the States, they show that the cells on our tongues that sense sour flavours are also responsible for tasting this carbonisation. And they've identified the gene that's probably responsible.
1: So go on then. How does it work?
0: Well, as I said, it's the sour, the sour cells that do it. We know that we have cells that detect bitter, sweet, salty, sour, and umami, umami. as you said, which is the, the flavour of monosodium glutamate. For parmesan the and cheese <laughs> yeah, Parmesan cheese, lots of it in tomatoes um, The taste system is also responsive to CO2 through a number of different pathways, so there's olfaction we can smell it, the chemoreception that detects CO2 in our lungs is also partly responsible, but by genetically deactivating specific sets of these taste receptor cells in mice, they could show that mice lacking the cells for sourness were completely unable to detect CO2. Now these cells express an ion channel called PKD 2 l one So they looked in these cells for candidate genes that were only really found in cells expressing that iron channel. Once they'd found a gene called Car4, they switched it off and noticed that even though animals with sour receptor cells could still taste sour things if this gene was switched off they couldn't taste co2 now this gene codes for something called carbonic anhydrase which catalyzes a reaction that turns carbon dioxide and water into bicarbonate and free protons we know that bicarbonate doesn't react with taste receptors so it must be these free protons that mean we can taste co2 but then there's a question of why we can taste carbon dioxide at all and the authors suggest that it might just be a coincidence and the enzyme is really there to maintain the correct pH balance in our taste buds. But there is some evidence of specific CO2 taste detection in insects so this may suggest that it has evolved in us as a means of detecting food that's fermenting or going off.
1: Mm, that kind of fizzy hummus thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I-, I love the idea as well of giving little mice like fizzy drinks. Like, Does that taste fizzy to you? Um, how do you do it anyway um, also this week researchers at Cambridge University have developed a new insect repellent coating which could help to reduce the threat of cockroaches now for many of us insects are just kind of a bit of a pest they get in your picnic but insect infestations are responsible for billions of pounds worth of damage across the globe every year now we're joined by Jan Henning Dirks from Cambridge University so Tell me a bit about what the problem is with insects and then how you've, uh, how you've tried to counteract this.
2: Well, yeah, well, the problem with insects is, is that they amazingly well stick to all kinds of surfaces. If you look around, you see them basically clinging to the mirror, clinging to the window, holding on to everything and holding on very, very tight. And so for us, this is a more scientific problem of to understand how this actually works. So at the Insect Biomechanics Work Group here in Cambridge, we were trying to figure out what makes insects so incredibly good in sticking to different kinds of surfaces. And whilst we were exploring the, this, we found a surface that can help you prevent your house and your belongings and probably even your lab from crawling insects.
1: So how does this surface work? Because we have, you know, non-slip surfaces, things like PTFE that we cover non-stick pans with. But why is, is your surface different? How does it work?
2: Well, our, our surface is completely different to all other insect repellents that you know. Because if you look around you, all insects that you can see, they have, a, they have sweaty feet, actually so they have, have they do yes <laughs> <laughs> and um, you can even write your PhD about it and so this, sweaty, this foot sweat that they have um, that helps them to stick to surfaces and our technology does something very new it, it basically make, it tricks the insects feet it makes them lubricate their own feet. Other repellents that you see, they work like they are sticky themselves. So, you know, these, these fly tapes that capture flies or some people who keep insects at home, they know that they have these uh, surfaces that erode and, and make the feet dirty. But our technology is like a selective sponge. It removes something from the, from the insect's adhesive fluid and what's left over makes the insect's feet slip.
1: So instead of having sort of a, a sticky glue that they're sticking up the wall with, suddenly they're going woo and sliding off.
2: It's very similar. So, th- so they don't really have a sticky su- uh, substance at first. It's more like ketchup or custard. It's, it's one part of it is oil and the other part, part is water. And together it works very similar to ketchup. But if we remove the water, that's what our surface does, then what's left over is the oil and that let, makes make index slip.
1: And tell me a bit more about this surface. I mean, what sort of things could we coat with it? Is it very pliable?
2: So that's, that's what we're exploring right now. So in theory, you, you can apply these, the surface to very, very many kinds of different uh, substances. So now, right now we're exploring and that's why we're looking for a commercial partner to make this really available for everyone so they can coat whatever they want with it and make index slip from the barbecue or from, from where they want, don't want index to be.
1: Fantastic. I'm looking forward to a non-insect, non-stick picnic hamper. That would be fantastic. That's Jan henning Dirks from Cambridge University.
0: Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at NakedScientists.com. Now, Sarah Caster perry looks back to this week in 1920 and the birth of the man who became known as Mr Tornado.
3: This week in science history saw on October the twenty third, nineteen twenty, the birth of Tetsuya Fujita, also known as Ted and Mr. Tornado. Fujita dedicated his life to studying tornadoes and related weather phenomena, and he lends his name to the Fujita scale, which describes the intensity of a tornado by how much damage it causes. Fujita was born in Fukuoka Prefecture on the island of Kyushu, the most southwesterly of Japan's main islands. As a young man, he showed interest in geology, cartography and physics, and he went on to study mechanical engineering at Meiji University. He had a lucky escape in choosing this university. Despite preferring Hiroshima himself, he followed his father's last wish and attended Meiji. If he had attended Hiroshima, he would almost certainly have been killed in the bombing of 1945. He started his study of storm winds in 1946 and completed his thesis on typhoons in 1953. His work showed so much promise that Dr. Horace Byers from the University of Chicago invited Fujita to work there, and in 1956, Fujita made the permanent move there along with his family. It was in America that he completed the bulk of his work on tornadoes and made several key breakthroughs in how they occur. Okay, so first of all, what is a tornado? Most people would be familiar with what they look like a column of rotating air that descends from the underside of a storm cloud to touch the ground, stirring up a cloud of dust and debris. But why and how they form is a little more complex. First we need to think about how the storm itself forms. Clouds form when warm, moist air rises to a cooler level in the atmosphere and the water in it condenses and forms clouds. The air can rise due to thermals produced by the sun heating the ground or as air passes up and over mountain ranges. Updrafts of warm air keep pushing the cloud up until it reaches a layer in the atmosphere known as the tropopause. Here it meets the cold air of the stratosphere that acts like a barrier, stopping it from rising further and causing it to spread out like the top of an anvil, creating the characteristic storm cloud shape. As the water droplets in the cloud join together, they fall as rain or as snow or hail. The falling water droplets drag cold air with them, creating things called downdrafts. So now we have a cloud with both updrafts and downdrafts happening. This creates friction inside the cloud and is what causes lightning. A feature that is key to the formation of strong tornadoes that Fujita discovered in the 1950s while working at Chicago is called a mesocyclone. This is a horizontal rotating tunnel of air formed within a storm cloud when winds coming from different directions at different levels cause the air inside it to spin. The updrafts in the clouds tip the spinning tunnel of air upwards. As the updrafts continue to suck air from ground level, an area of low pressure develops and the bottom of the now rotating storm cloud descends. The winds speed up at the surface and get faster and faster as they get nearer to the centre of the funnel. A bit like when an ice skater is spinning, when they pull their arms in they spin a lot faster than if they're out at the sides. The high-speed winds at the surface are what causes the damage to buildings, uproots trees and throws vehicles up to 100 metres. Tornadoes occur in many countries around the world, not just the United States. They also occur in the UK, elsewhere in Europe, in Australia and in India. The Netherlands actually has the most tornadoes per area of land, followed by the UK. But the majority of severe tornadoes occur in the United States, and mostly in what is known as Tornado Alley, the Midwestern states, including Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, and Texas. Until Fujita's work, there was no standardized measure of the intensity of tornadoes. In 1971, the Fujita scale was introduced. There are six levels, from F0, the lowest, to F5. F0 tornadoes have winds of around 40 to 70 miles an hour and are a few tens of meters wide. F5s can be over a kilometre wide, with wind speeds of over 300 miles an hour. The wind speeds are estimated by the amount of damage that's done by the tornado. Because of this, the estimation is fairly imprecise and varies depending on what sort of buildings, if any, were damaged for the estimation to be made. So, for example, an F4 in a highly populated Kansas town might only have scored as an F3 in a remote Indian village where the standard of housing was lower and there were fewer buildings to be damaged. This inconsistency led to a new scale known as the Enhanced Fujita Scale to be introduced in the States in 2007 that gives much more accurate wind speeds. Another of Fujita's discoveries was the downburst, a dangerous phenomenon that can knock planes out of the air during takeoff or landing. It's pretty much the opposite of a tornado, where surrounding air is pulled in and up into the spinning funnel. In a downburst, there's a sudden, violent downdraft of air from the base of a cloud to the ground. When the downburst reaches the ground, high winds rushing away from the centre can flatten trees and damage property. The danger to aircraft is caused by wind shear, which can decrease the amount of lift generated by the wings. This, combined with the downrushing air, can cause a plane to literally drop out of the sky. In the later years of his life, Fujita became the director of the Wind Research Laboratory at the University of Chicago, and he continued to study tornadoes, hurricanes, downbursts and other weather phenomena. He published several books and continued working even after his official retirement in 1992 and right up until his death in 1998. The work of Mr Tornado revolutionised the study of tornadoes and our understanding of how and why they form. And although technology to track and predict tornadoes and provide warnings to those at risk has improved, he is still considered a true pioneer of the field.
0: That was Sarah Castor-Perry looking back at the birth of Ted, Mr. Tornado Fujita, which happened this week in science history. But that's all we have for this Naked Scientist newsflash, which was produced by me, Ben Valsler. As always, there's plenty more science available on our website and in our other podcasts, so please join us on the web at thenakedscientists.com. We'll be back with another round of science news very soon. The Naked Scientist Newsflash Reacting to the world's best science For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com